Well, let's bow in a word of prayer as we get ready to uh, look at Philippians this evening. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have given us a uh, revelation that is true and that is accurate and that is uh, amazingly relevant for every one of us as we are here tonight, uh, even though it was penned a couple of thousand years ago. And we thank you that your word is um, its a dagger, it's a sword. Uh, it cuts in the right places. Uh, we live in a culture that is so murky, that is so confused. Uh, there is no truth, our culture says, and for sure there is no absolute truth. I remember seeing that book in the bookstore this week about religious fanaticism and the five traits of religious fanaticism and the first trait was they believe in absolute truth. Well, by that man's definition, we're fanatics because we believe you've given us a revelation that is true. And yet there's such balance. And wherever your word has gone, uh, the, the well-being of people, uh, their, their lives, their relationships, uh, has, has gone dramatically upward. So we uh, ask that you'll teach us, that you'll instruct us, that you'll give us teachable hearts. Uh, we can sit here, Lord. Uh, we can even take notes. But if we don't have teachable spirits, we might as well just pack it up right now. So meet with us. Do your work. Don't let this time be wasted, we ask. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Theodore Roosevelt was one of our more amazing presidents. One of the outstanding things about him, and there were many outstanding things about Roosevelt, uh, he was a man who wrote letters. Uh, he was a communicator. Uh, we basically rely uh, today on, uh, on telephones. We rely on email. We... Uh, but, but, you know, he lived in a different culture in a different time. Theodore Roosevelt, in his adult life, wrote over 100,000 letters. Uh, Harvard University Press actually published eight volumes, not of his writings, just of his letters. Eight volumes of letters that Theodore Roosevelt wrote. Um, in essence, those eight volumes represented about one out of every ten letters that he would write. He wrote to everybody, wrote to his kids, wrote to his in-laws, wrote to the King of England, wrote to his cabinet members, wrote to his wife. Now, whenever his wife would receive a letter from him, which was often, usually more than uh, two a week, he would write to her. No matter where he was, he'd write her a letter. She'd get the letter, she'd read it, and then she'd burn it. Because she didn't want anybody else reading that letter. That was for her from him. But a lot of other letters were kept. And uh, Harvard University got a hold of a lot of them. There is a new uh, one volume uh, compendium of, of Theodore Roosevelt's letters that represent about one out of a hundred. Uh, the interesting thing is you read these letters uh, and they cover the time from when he was a young man until just a few months before he died. Uh, every letter has a context. A letter is not written out of a vacuum. A letter has a setting. A letter has a set of circumstances out of which the message is being penned. There are things going on in Roosevelt's life. I'll give you a couple of examples. And the reason I'm going to look at his letters is that you realize, of course, that much of the New Testament is our letters. We call them epistles. We're going to be uh, studying in the fall here the uh, epistle to the church at Philippi, Philippians. It's a letter. That's what it is. Quite frankly, it's, it's a thank you note because of a gift that they sent him. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Roosevelt, this is just a volume of letters. This represents, this is small print. This represents about one out of every hundred letters that Roosevelt wrote in his adult life. Um, here's one on page 630 that he wrote to his son Quentin. Quentin was his youngest boy. 
And Quentin was off with his other sons fighting in World War I, so you can imagine the anxiety that he was feeling. Uh, even though Theodore Roosevelt was a warrior, he was uh, the last president to ever lead a cavalry charge. And if you've read anything about San Juan Hill, it wasn't a hill, it was a bluff. And uh, it was pure suicide. But he led the charge. This guy was a warrior. He was a man who believed in fighting for what you believe. He's got his boys out on the front. He writes a letter to Quentin. Now, Quentin wasn't married, but Quentin had this gal at home by the name of Flora. And Flora was a winner. Flora was all right. And old Teddy liked Flora. And uh, felt like his son would do very, very well to marry this young woman from a very fine and upstanding family. This gal had it. So he catch this letter that he writes. Here's, this guy's busy. Th this, this guy has stuff to do. This guy, listen to what he says. He says, Dear Quentin, this is December 24th, 1917. Dearest Quentin, Mother has stopped writing to you because you have not written to her or to any of us for a long time. That will make no permanent difference to you, but I write about something that may make a permanent difference. Flora spoke to Ethel, his sister, yesterday, that the fact of the fact that you have only written rarely to her. She made no complaint whatsoever, but she knows that some of her friends receive three or four letters a week from their lovers or husbands. Now, of course, you may not keep Flora anyhow, but if you wish to lose her, continue to be an infrequent correspondent. <laughs> if, however, now catch this. This is good stuff. If, however, you wish to keep her, write her letters, interesting letters and love letters, at least three times a week. Write no matter how tired you are, no matter how inconvenient it is. Write if you're smashed up in a hospital, write when you are doing the most dangerous stunts, write when your work is most irksome and disheartening, write all the time. Write enough letters to allow for half of them being lost. Affectionately, a hardened and weary old father, your father. Guy was a straight shooter. That's, um, and I, the, the reason I read that one to you is that I think that's how he lived his life. When he was tired, when he was exhausted, when he was worn out, he'd still go ahead. You don't write 100,000 letters in your adult life by just doing it when you feel like it. This guy was a communicator. Uh, he wrote to uh, George's Clemenceau, uh, who was, a, uh, who was a, a French politician and statesman on July 25th, 1918. He, uh, he's responding to his letter. It's, 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 a, it's a brief letter here. He's talking about war. And then he writes this. He says, uh, of my four boys, Quentin, as you know, has been killed. And two of the other three wounded, and all three of these have been decorated for gallantry and efficiency in action. Thank heaven it begins to look as if at last Germany had spent her strength, and I thank heaven also that now we have at least a few hundred thousand Americans to fight besides the French. Is there a context to that letter? No. He's absolutely brokenhearted because his youngest boy um, has been killed. He writes a letter just a few weeks later uh, to a cousin, and he says, it is no use pretending that Quentin's death is not very terrible. It is most so for poor Flora, who is staying here with Ethel, as we are, but it is almost as hard for Mother. They have both been very brave. There is nothing to comfort Flora at the moment, but she is young. I most earnestly hope that time will be very merciful to her and that in a few years she will keep Quentin only as a loving memory of her golden youth, as the lover of her golden dawn, and that she will find happiness with another good and fine man. But of course, it would be all wrong for me to tell her this now. Why? Because it just happened. You see, there's a context. There's a context to every letter. The last letter in this book of letters is written to Arthur H. Lee, who was the father-in-law of Roosevelt's daughter. Very lengthy letter. He expresses his gratefulness that the war is finally over. This is his final paragraph. 
and he's referring to his sons here. Ted and Kermit have taken part in the last fighting, and I believe that they are now walking toward the Rhine. Archie is pretty badly crippled. He's now back with us. I doubt if his arm will ever be quite right again, but he will be able to do a great many things with it. Ted has been made lieutenant colonel and commanded his regiment in the final fighting. Dick Derby, who is Roosevelt's son-in-law, has done exceedingly well and has been promoted to be lieutenant colonel. Today is Quentin's birthday. With dearest love to Ruth and Faith, always yours, Theodore Roosevelt. That was written on November 19, 1918, on Quentin's birthday. Um, six months later, Theodore Roosevelt died. And those who knew him best believed that he died of a broken heart because he was in amazing physical condition. Every letter has a context. So too does Philippians. Philippians has a context. And if we miss the context of Philippians, we miss to a great degree what this book is about. Um, there are always circumstances. There are the circumstances of um, the writer, and there are the circumstances uh, to those whom he is writing to. Uh, Paul was a man of letters. Some of his letters were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Some of his letters were God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16 would say. Uh, Philippians is, is, is one of those letters. Um, Paul's circumstances here, as he pins this letter, what he's doing is he is, he is writing to, uh, to the church at Philippi. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at the uh, history of the church at Philippi. We looked at how this church came together, because every church has a history. This church has a history. This church has a very brief history. This church is less than four years old. Uh, in Acts 16, we are uh, given the events that led to the founding of the church at Philippi. Paul, Paul was on a second missionary journey. This is about 10 years prior to the writing of this actual letter to the Philippians. Uh, he, is, uh, he, he was going another direction, but he had, a, uh, he had a, a vision, and a man from Macedonia was saying, come over and help us, and they took that to be the leadership of the Lord. So he went to... Um, to Macedonia, which is northern Greece today. Um, Philippi was a major city in northern Greece. And we mentioned uh, that it was a, a Roman colony. Uh, what that basically meant was, and not to belabor the point if you were here with us last week, but, but Rome would set up these uh, Roman colonies, which basically were the, uh, how do I say this? They were the... Um, they, they were attached to Rome. You, you've heard of the Roman uh, system of roads, many which are still there today. Uh, they, they, were, they were smart men. They knew if they were going to control the empire, they had to be able to move troops quickly. So they built roads, and they didn't slap them together. They built them well. Um, in northern Greece, the main city was Philippi. A Roman colony was staffed by at least 300 retired Roman soldiers. And these Roman colonies, as I said last week, as they would go into these different cultures and Rome would expand, they had no interest in developing the local culture. Rome was not into multiculturalism. They uh, were into Romanism. So they would start these Roman colonies with 300 choice men and their families. There were benefits to being part of a Roman colony. Biggest benefit was you didn't pay any taxes. But they were small Romans. You ate Roman food. You spoke the Roman language. You dressed like a Roman. You listened to Roman radio stations. You read Roman books. It was, you ate Roman ice cream, gelato, or whatever the heck they ate. It was, it was a small Rome, and that's what Philippi was. Uh, when Paul, you know, a lot of times on Paul's missionary journeys, he'd go to a synagogue. When he first showed up, he'd go to a synagogue. There was no synagogue. Why? It was a Roman colony. To have a synagogue, you've you got to have at least 10, uh, 10 Jewish men. They didn't have 10 Jewish men. So Acts 16 tells us about the founding of the church. Now it's about 10, 11 years later. And Paul is writing them. Why is Paul writing them? Because they have sent two things to Paul. 
they sent a guy named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was out of their congregation. They sent him to Paul to see if he could assist Paul. They also apparently sent a financial gift to Paul. If you look at the end of Philippians, if you look at verse 14, at uh, chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, the region in which they were, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Uh, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Look at the next verse. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance, and I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Uh, so he is writing in response to them to, to thank them for what they have done. So they sent a financial gift. They sent him Epaphroditus to encourage Paul. Now, why would Paul need to be encouraged? Well, because of Paul's circumstances. Paul was in Rome, but he wasn't there on a sightseeing tour. Paul was in Rome because he was in prison. That's why Paul was in Rome. That's why they sent Epaphroditus, because they wanted to make sure that, uh, they wanted to make sure that Paul's needs were taken care of. They wanted to make sure that he had what he needed and uh, that's why they sent Epaphroditus, and they sent a, uh, a financial gift. These people were givers. These, these people were uh, not tight with their money. They were willing to, uh, to share what God had given them. Bob Schenck uh, sent out a fax, and he had this story in the facts, and I, I liked it. It's about a lawyer. Uh, a local charity had never received a donation from the town's most successful attorney. So the director called him to get a contribution. Our records show, sir, that you make 500000 a year, yet you haven't given a penny to charity, the director said. Wouldn't you like to help the community? The lawyer said, well, sir, did your research show you that my mother is ill with medical bills several times her annual income? Well, well, no, mumbled the director. Or that my brother is blind and unemployed? The stricken director began to stammer out an apology. Or that my sister's husband died in an accident, said the lawyer, his, his, his voice rising in indignation leaving her penniless with three kids? The humiliated director simply said, Sir, I, I had no idea. So, said the lawyer, if I don't give any money to them, why would I give any to you? <laughs> well, this guy was not part of the Church of Philippi. Uh, the Church at Philippi put... Uh, shoot leather on their faith. They were willing to help. Now, Paul was in prison, and isn't it interesting how often when you study the New Testament, Paul's in prison? Just seemed to be a part of his life. Not all the time, but a fair amount of time. Uh, in the book of Acts, Paul was in prison at least four times. Number one, he was in prison in Philippi. We looked at that last week in Acts 16. Uh, why was he in prison? Well, he shows up in this town. First of all, he meets Lydia, who is this wealthy upper-class woman, and uh, leads her and her household to Christ. And, uh, and then there is this slave girl who apparently is demon-possessed and is used by her masters to uh, tell fortunes and make money. And Paul cast a demon out of her as... Jesus would cast demons out of people that were demon-possessed. Uh, this is real stuff, by the way. This happens. Um, it, it, uh, if you doubt that, you talk to someone who's been on the mission field. And they will tell you, this, this, isn't, things you, this isn't something you seek out, but it's real. And uh, the power of Christ still has authority over these things. He cast out a demon out of this young girl, and her master's ability to make a profit is gone. So they raise a ruckus, and they throw Paul in jail. Now, we looked at part of this last week, but there was a part that we didn't look at. And I'd like you to go back to Acts 16, if you would, for a minute. Because uh, if you recall, they were beaten and beaten with rods 
because a crowd rose up against them. And then they were thrown in jail, and their feet were put in the stocks. And as they were there, I'm in verse 25 of Acts 16, they began to pray and sing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison were sh- of the prison house was shaken. Immediately all the doors were open, everyone's chains were unfastened. So the jailer, who's roused out of his sleep, uh, he's, going to, uh, he's going to kill himself with his sword because that's going to happen anyway if these guys get out. Paul stops him. And uh, it's interesting because he, he obviously had heard these guys praying as well as the others did and uh, had, to be, had to be amazed because when you're beaten with rods what are you, and, you're, and you're bleeding and you may have even broken bones and some internal hemorrhaging, what in the world are you doing at midnight praising God? But that's what these guys were doing. Had an impact on him. So he says to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they lead him to the Lord and his whole household, baptize him and his household that night. You know, in the book of Acts, there, there are some groups of people who, um, who just look at the book of Acts, and they pick up from the book of Acts that, uh, that you must be baptized in order to be saved. Uh, Church of Christ, uh, that's their teaching, that without water baptism, you can't be saved. Um, and part of the, part of, I think part of the misunderstanding there, there are some verses they look at, but I think part of it is, is that in the New Testament, when someone would come to know Christ, they didn't run them through a baptismal class for six weeks. They, it was a public testimony. So if you received Christ, it was like uh, Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. And the guy's reading, and he doesn't understand what he's reading. He's reading out of Isaiah, and Philip comes along and explains to him, and the guy says, you know, he understands about Christ, and he, what, what prevents me from being baptized? Nothing. They take the guy, he takes him in the water, baptizes the guy. Uh, there, there wasn't a great space of time between receiving Christ in one's heart and then the public act of baptism. Um, so this family was baptized. And, and by the way now, Paul and Silas are, 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 are out of jail. Uh, what's interesting is that, look at verse 33. Then the jailer took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. Jailers don't normally wash the wounds of prisoners. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now, when day came, we didn't read this last week, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, This is great. Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who were Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves out and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. The last thing you do in a Roman colony is beat with rods Roman citizens. See, they had jumped the conclusions thrown Paul, who was a Roman citizen, not one who had purchased his citizenship, but one who was a, a citizen by birth, this, this, was, this was not good. This was a faux pas. This was, uh, they were in trouble. And, and Paul, this is kind of great, Paul's just kind of tweaking them a little bit. He's just kind of juicing them a little bit. Uh, Hey, hey, we're Roman citizens. You, you have them coming and get us out. Uh, look at verse 39. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And when they went out of prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them. And then they departed. That's how, that's how the church at Philippi was founded. But it involved a stint in jail. Paul's second time in jail was in Jerusalem in Acts 21. Verse 33 through 23, verse 20. We won't turn there. I'll just give these to you, the rest of them. Paul's third time in prison was in Caesarea. Uh, That is outlined for us in Acts 23, verse 25, all the way through Acts 26, verse 32. Now, where I do want you to turn on this one is Acts 24, 27. And I'll tell you why this is a big deal. 
Because this says, see, he was just put in jail overnight, like Randy Moss. Just a brief deal. You guys got Sports Center today, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so the Philippi deal was, was short term. But you get into the Caesarea thing, Acts 24, verse 27. It says, but after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This deal at Caesarea, and you can go to Caesarea today. When you go to Israel, Caesarea is, is a beautiful coastal city. And they had this palace there that sat, I mean, it sits right smack on the beach. You're on the far east side of the Mediterranean. I mean, it is, and what's amazing is, They've, they've, they've done a lot of digging there, and they've, I mean, you've got the same floor, you've got the different level, levels, you've got pillars, and when, you've got the amphitheater. I've taught in the amphitheater there. It's an amazing place. Paul was there for two years uh, in jail. Two years is a long stint out of one's life. Uh, and and, and then, as you read through the rest of Acts, what, see, what had happened was he had appealed, he had appealed to Caesar. Well, he's meeting with these other guys, and he's making his defense before these other guys. And what happens is uh, the consistence was if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he probably would have been released. So in spite of the fact that they didn't see a problem with Paul after this two-year wait, he appeals. He'd already made his appeal to, to, to Caesar. So he's got to go to Rome. What you need to understand is that the Caesarea imprisonment and then the imprisonment in Rome are all tied together. So it was two years in Caesarea. Then he goes to Rome. Um, note Acts 28, verse 30, if you would. It says, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. There were different kinds of imprisonment in Rome depending on the severity of the crime and depending on the trust level they felt they could give to the prisoner. Uh, Paul had earned some respect. Paul had earned some credibility. They had gotten to know Paul. Note, if you would... Um, Note, if you would, uh, go back to Acts 27, because this, this, stuff, is, this stuff is really kind of amazing. Uh, look at 27, verse 7. Now, they're sailing. They're, they're on their way to Rome. And it says, when we had sailed solely for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Sinaitis, since the wind did not permit us to, do, to go further, he starts talking about all these different cities and where they are, and he's recording the journey, and he's recording, you know, how it was going. Look at verse 8. And with difficulty sailing past uh, it as we came to a certain place called Fair Havens. Look at verse 9. And when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, uh, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Uh, but the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than what was being said by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now what happens is, as you read down through here, look at verse 14. But before long there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uraquilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it. There's this incredible storm. And you've got this problem. Look at verse 18. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison cargo. These guys are in trouble. This is a big-time, major-league storm. Look at verse 20. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. You're talking about... You're talking about a potential situation of death. Verse 21, when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst 
and said, men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. And yet now I urge you to keep your, your courage, for there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God. It will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. And then what happens is, is as, as you start reading the rest of this account, what happens is there's a shift in leadership. And what happens is, uh, they, they're trying to run aground and they're trying to, to land this ship and get on this island. Look at verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these, main, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Suddenly you got reversal here. Who's calling the shots? Paul's calling the shots. What happened was the more time they spent with this guy, the more credibility that they began to perceive in his life and suddenly, you've got a guy who's a slave, who is a prisoner, who's given leadership to the whole deal. Verse 37, um, well, actually 33. And until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, today's the 14th day. You've been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you shall perish. And having said this, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. And uh, what happened? Then, then go down to verse 41. They're still in tr tr trouble here. Striking a reef where the two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and, a, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, that none of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. The centurion was influenced by what Paul had said earlier. Um, you guys still with me here? This is like watching slides from somebody's trip. Now, they get on the island and... It's interesting, you see how, how the credibility of Paul, the more time they spend with him, the more his credibility goes up. Uh, they're on Malta, verse 2. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire, received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, although he's been safe from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Then you read in verse 7 about a guy named um, Publius who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. He was kind of the head honcho of the island, but he was in bed with dysentery and a fever. Paul went in to see him, verse 8. After he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. What do you think about the guys that were running this? Uh, what do you think about this centurion, what he thought about Paul? And this is all so that Paul can get to Rome. Now, see, Paul gets to Rome, and why is he going to Rome? So that he can be in prison some more. That's why the church at Philippi was writing to Paul. They wanted to encourage Paul because he's in prison. Now, he's got some freedom. He's not in solitary. Look at verse 16. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Um, and it happened that after three days, he called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they had come together, he began to speak to them. Um, he begins to give an explanation to them. Um, look at verse 23. When they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. So he had an he had, he was sort of under house arrest, he was under Caesar, 
apparently he had some kind of quarters that was part of the of the larger uh, uh, palace of Caesar, but he was able to receive visitors. He was able to come and go, but um, turn back over to Philippians. We'll, we're setting the stage here. I want you to see how, I want you to see the goodness of God in these circumstances. Um, well, but before I hit the verse, let, let, let me go ahead and, and, and give you one other point. Uh, you, you got the setting. You got the context of this letter. They've written to Paul. They've sent Epaphroditus. They sent a gift. He's writing back to them because he's in Rome waiting to go before Caesar. And by the way, who was Caesar right at this point? A, a real soft, cuddly guy by the name of Nero, who was sort of a right-wing fundamentalist who was uh, into family values. That, that wasn't Nero. Nero was uh, was a pervert who had uh, he had married a young boy. He was a uh, a sadist. He was uh, uh, he was horrible. You, you know about Nero and all that he did and all the stories and all the legends are true about this guy. That's who Paul is waiting for. That's who is in office at this particular time. So you can see why they would send Epaphroditus to encourage Paul. But you know what's interesting is you read Philippians and you read his response back to them? It, it really is quite amazing as you read this book because Paul is not down in the mouth. Paul is not, uh, Paul's not in the pit. As you read through Philippians, what comes out of this is that this is a guy that is doing well. This is a guy who's got some perspective. Um, this is a guy, there is, um, this is a guy who is thankful. This is a guy who is not overly stressed. This is a guy who has an amazing perspective. This is a guy who's in Huntsville on death roll waiting for an appeal. That's what you've got here. But he's really not worried. He's really not concerned. In fact, in fact, they sent Epaphroditus to encourage him. He sent an Epaphroditus back with more encouragement for them than they sent to him. Now, how can that be? It's, it's because Paul has a certain perspective. Now, one thing that we can't forget is that this Roman imprisonment was two years. You tie that up with the imprisonment at Caesarea, that's a four-year imprisonment. That's a four-year chunk out of the life of Paul. I don't think that was easy on Paul. Uh, because, you know, Paul was a guy who was, uh, I, I think, uh, Paul was a type A personality. Uh, Paul was a guy who wanted to achieve, he wanted to accomplish, he wanted to make something of his life. Uh, you know what's interesting about Paul? He had always wanted to go to Rome. Any of you guys have any desire to go to Rome? It's worth going to. It's an amazing city. The amazing thing about Rome is, um, is uh, there's history everywhere. The fascinating thing to me about Rome is that you know you know how in uh, you know how in, in, in uh, University Park or Highland Park they're gonna uh, University Park some guy will buy two or three of those small houses and small lots and and what do they do? They tear them down. Tear them down. I mean to to the dirt. Uh, even even dig up the foundations, pour a new foundation. You know what's amazing about Rome? They don't tear down anything in Rome, and they haven't for thousands of years. You'll see a beautiful apartment building sitting on the side of the hill, and, and what's amazing is you can see the layers of civilization in the foundation because they don't tear down anything. They just build on top of what's already there, and they've been doing it for about 4,000 years. You can identify the layers and the different, and it's everywhere in Rome. It's an amazing place. Rome is worth going to. Paul always wanted to go to Rome. Let me show you this. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 1 in the letter that he wrote to the Romans. Verse 13, he says this. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far 
in order that I might obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now catch this. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Interesting thing about Paul is that Paul had always wanted to go to Rome. Uh, it was Paul's plan that he would go to Rome as a preacher. It was God's plan that Paul would go to Rome as a prisoner. Sometimes we don't understand circumstantially what has happened in our lives. Sometimes we are puzzled. Sometimes we make plans. Sometimes we uh, even check our plans and we get godly counsel and we want to know the will of God and we talk to as many people and we pray and we get, uh, you know, we talk with our wives and all this and we lay our plans. And it doesn't quite work out the way that we thought it was going to work out. Have you ever had a circumstance where you thought God was leading you? In fact, you were sure that God was leading you. There's a major transition, major change. It's, it's like God has given you all green lights all the way and you get there and... It's like, it's not working out. God does that all the time. And when we get there and the circumstances turn negative, oftentimes we think, I thought God led me. Well, he did lead you. You were precisely right. But you see, it's not turning out the way in the time frame that we anticipated. Sometimes God delays his mercy. John Owen said this, if I can find it. John Owen says, the delay of your mercies is really to your advantage. The foolish child would pluck the apple while it is green, but when it is ripe, it drops of its own accord and is more pleasant and wholesome. You know, the great thing about God is that God always knows when the circumstances are ripe. Sometimes in our haste, and sometimes in our, in our exuberance, and sometimes uh, in our immaturity, and sometimes just because we're American men that are in a hurry, we'll get a glimpse of what ought to happen, but we're off on the timing. And see, what we're doing is we're running around and we're picking green fruit. But what God does is that God oversees the process and he's waiting for the fruit to be ripe. And when it's ripe, it drops right into our lap. You guys know what I'm talking about, don't you? See, this is part and parcel of the Christian life where we have to learn, we have to, learn to wait on the Lord. And sometimes, as Isaiah 55, 8 so clearly says, God says, my ways are not your ways. See, Paul's way was that he would go to Rome as a preacher. God's way is that he went there as a prisoner. Uh, God is often... Uh, changing our plans and surprising us and, uh, and at times frustrating us. That's where some of you guys are right now, circumstantially. Uh, it's, it's not the way you anticipated that it would be. There's some disappointment. There's a, hey, think about Paul. He's on his way to Rome, and he knew he was supposed to get there. So see, you're thinking, all right, he's just going to go first class. No, they get this storm. They're not eating for a couple of weeks. He, he has a, he's got a snake latch on to him. He's got, see, we get this idea that we're in God's will. It's just smooth sailing. As we said last week, you're just grooving. You, you, you got the top down. You got a blonde seated next to you. The weather's perfect. It's not how it works. It's rarely, it's rarely that way. Um. All right, now let me ask you this. With all this change going on, as you read through Philippians, how is it that Paul can have such a strong sense of joy and thankfulness and rejoicing? How can he do that? Well, there's a hint. Go to Philippians 1. In fact, you've been there. You were waiting for me to get there. In Philippians 1... He refers to himself and his imprisonment. Um, look, at, um, look at verse 7. He says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment 
and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Then note, if you would, verse 12, uh, at verse 13. He says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. Uh, Paul went to Rome as a prisoner. He has appealed to Caesar. See, the idea here is that this guy, this guy is in Note what he says in Ephesians 3.1. He says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, that is pregnant with meaning, that phrase. See, we look at Paul's circumstances, and we say, this guy is, this guy is in trouble. This guy is up against uh, a system that is anti-God and anti-truth and anti-gospel. Uh, Nero is in charge, uh, a guy who would later take Christians, dip them in pitch, would take hundreds of them. Uh, they would then tie them to poles that lined the streets of Rome, and then as darkness prevailed over the city, the soldiers would come along and put torches to them. And the Christians were the living and then dying torches that lit the streets of Rome under the reign of Nero. This guy was crazy. This guy was insane. Now, if you were in prison under those circumstances, if I were in prison, I'm wondering how much joy I would, I would have and wonder how much joy you would have. But see, Paul, in his mind, Paul was not imprisoned by Nero. Paul was a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? See, if you're a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we talked about last week, you understand that he is sovereign, and you understand that there are no accidents, and there are no events that come into your lives that are not under his control, when you understand that harm cannot hit you without his permission, and that if it does hit you in some way, shape, or form, it's designed ultimately for your good. When you've got that kind of perspective, you can be in Rome waiting for uh, Nero's verdict, and you can be joyful and actually write letters and encourage other people. He was a prisoner of Christ. May I say this to you? We're all in different circumstances here tonight. Uh, we're, we're all dealing with different issues in our lives. But the fact of the matter is, regardless of your circumstances, you still belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 1, note verse 1. Note how he addresses these people. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Uh, literally, it's slaves of Christ Jesus. Uh, gosh, in Rome, slaves were everywhere. They would sell slaves. Uh, a slave is solely and totally owned by his master. As far as Paul was concerned, that was his relationship. He was completely sold out to Jesus Christ. Uh, he had been bought with Christ. Let me ask you something. How do you live your life? You see that word in uh, chapter 1, verse 1? It says, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints. That's the most, I think, one of the most misunderstood words in all the Bible. Uh, the word saint literally translated means holy one. Uh, we, we got these weird concepts of what it means to be a saint. Part of it is because of the Catholic Church and the foolishness they've come up with in regard to saints. And they got this whole system they came up with that is not in the scriptures, that certain people who live certain kinds of lives, who did certain miracles, etc., etc., they're saints. No, they're not. A saint in the scripture is someone who is owned by Jesus Christ. 
It is someone who has received his forgiveness and the pardon of their sins by the blood of Christ. Not that we're holy, but he has transferred his holiness to us. Uh, The concept of holiness uh, in in the Old Testament. You know, you, you read through some of that stuff in the Old Testament, and all that stuff God had Israel do, they, um, they ate differently than the other nations. You ever read those, those uh, dietary requirements in the Old Testament? You know why God did that? Because he wanted Israel to be holy. You know what holy means? It means pure. It means different. Different. See, to be holy is to be different. God wanted a people for himself who were set aside for himself. They were the holy. So they had different, they would eat differently, they would worship differently, they would sacrifice differently, they would treat their families differently. See, they were to be a holy nation. We're to be holy as he is. Let me ask you something. In your life, is there holiness? And see, right there, what do you mean by that? What I'm saying is, is there a difference? Is there a difference between the way you live and the other 45 guys that live on your street live? Is there a difference in the way that you treat your wife than those other guys that don't know Christ? Is there a difference in how you fill out your tax return in your life and those guys that don't know Christ? Is there a difference how... Um, Is there a difference how you treat people in authority? As opposed to how they treat people in authority. See, because we have been bought by Jesus Christ, and you realize the scriptures say that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. It's been said that every man has his price. You've heard that, I've heard it. And sometimes in this uh, culture that we've had in recent years, a lot of guys who were believers had some incredible opportunities. And all they had to do was, uh, was overlook some things. All they had to do was look the other way. All they had to do was plead ignorance. All they had to do was not say anything and just let it take its course. You know what I'm talking about. And see, those are tough situations. And you've got to decide before you ever get them what you're going to do. That's what you've got to decide what you're going to do. Before the situation ever presents itself, you've got to decide what you're going to do. Because the temptation is so great once you're in the circumstance, if you haven't already decided before you get in there what you're going to do, you're in trouble. What do good coaches do? Good coaches prepare their players for situations before the situation ever comes up. So if, if, if you're a defensive coordinator and you're playing a team, and they run an option. You, be, you better show those guys how you deal with an option because it's, I mean, it's not a pro-set offense. I mean, the guy's not dropping back. He's going around the end, and he's got a guy. You know, you remember the wish, when the wishbone came out? I mean, they, I mean, they scored 72 points. You know, under Royal, Texas would score 72 points because nobody knew how in the world do you, nobody had seen that before. So you know what old Bear Bryant did after Daryl Royal trounced him, didn't you? He called up old Daryl and wanted to get with him and just spend some time with him and bring his coaches, and so he did. And they spent four days, and Daryl Royal showed him how to do that wishbone. And then he went out and played USC and beat them 72 to nothing. You see? I mean, that whenever there's a change, whenever there's see, you, you, and there's a principle for leaders. Those that are under you, you've got to prepare them for situations before they ever get in the situation. Uh, as, as men who belong to the Lord, we've got to determine and we've got to think through in situations that come up what we do before they ever come up. You see. So when you're on a business trip and you're in that hotel room by yourself and you know, you're hitting that, you've you got to decide what you're going to do with TV before you ever get in that room or you're going to be in trouble. Because you don't even have to buy the pay stuff there's going to be pornography that's going to be staring you in the face. And you've got to decide before you get there what you're going to do. Because, you see, you're called to be different than the other guys on the 11th floor at the Marriott in Cincinnati. See what I'm talking about? That's what you call 
holiness. You're different. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. What's your price? Then said every man has a price. You know what we need? We need some guys who can't be bought. Doesn't matter if it's five million, ten million, fifty million, hundred million, doesn't matter. You can't be bought because you've already been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You guys tracking with me here? You know what I'm saying? That's what it means to be a saint. That's what it means uh, to be a holy one. Now here's, here's something we need to understand. Prison is not easy. Prison wasn't easy on Paul because Paul was a mover and shaker. Paul was an achiever. Paul wanted to preach the gospel where it had never been preached before. Paul was a type A personality. Uh, Paul didn't drive a Volkswagen van in the 60s. And you, you know what I'm talking about? Some of you guys don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, Paul was not a laid-back 60s hip. Paul was a guy that wanted to get it done. He had goals. He wanted to achieve. He wanted his life to count. I think Paul was results-oriented. And what happened to Paul is what's going to happen to us. If you're that way, I was talking with a guy last week. I don't see him here. I won't give you a name, his name. We were just talking. And as we were talking, he was telling me about the fact that he's kind of in a holding pattern. And then he was telling me that he's been taking some um, uh, instruments, some tests down at the seminary, helping determine what he's like. And he started telling me his pattern, and I was familiar with these different tests. And I said, oh, and, you know, he, he told me high D, secondary I, low S, and the C was a little higher. That's on the Performax thing. Well, I know that pattern because that's me. I said, oh, that's what you call results-oriented. He goes, yeah, I'm really results-oriented. And you know what he is right now? He's in a holding pattern. And it's driving him nuts because he's got no results. Paul was results-oriented. You don't have to be in a literal prison to be in prison. There are different kinds of prison. But if you're God's man, at some point in your life, quite frankly, more than one point in your life, you're going to find yourself in prison. Maybe not Huntsville. You'll find yourself in a, uh, a prison of circumstances. Some of you will find yourself in a, uh, in a difficult marriage. Some of you will find yourself in a prison of, uh, of grief, like Theodore Roosevelt. At some time, you'll find yourself in a, in, in a, in a prison of deep disappointment, uh, um, a, a prison of broken health. See, these things happen. And see, the reason they're so hard on us is that when they happen, we're not doing anything. We're not achieving anything. We're not getting any results. We're not making a difference. Let me give you a thought. There are all kinds of different prisons. There are all kinds of different circumstances. And when you're in it, what you want to do is you want to get out. Here's the amazing thing. If you really believe in the same God that Paul believed in, it is possible. Here's what needs to happen. When you're in difficult circumstances that are not pleasant to you, let me say this to you. If you can change your circumstances, then change them. If you can change them legitimately and biblically without violating any biblical principle or violating your conscience. If you can change your circumstances, then change them. But if you're not happy with your wife and you don't think she'll ever understand you and you'll never get along, does that give you the right to go divorce her like everybody else? No. No, it doesn't. because you belong to Christ. We live by a different set of standards. You say, well, Steve, I want to be happy. I want to have some joy like Paul had. The key, the key to genuine happiness is not right circumstances. It's doing what's right in any circumstance. That's the key. It's obedience. It's following the Lord from your heart. It's being different. It's not cutting and running. It's not 
Here's the principle. There are different kinds of prisons, but God is the warden of all of them. There's the principle. So what's your prison? Is it an addiction you fight with? Let me tell you something. He's the warden. You want to be on good terms with the warden. Let me tell you what else. You want to submit to the warden. You want to obey the warden. In this case, the warden has all wisdom. He has all sovereignty. He has all power. And let me tell you something else. The warden knows exactly what he's doing. Next week, we're going to see one of the greatest passages in all the Scripture. Because, you see, to look on the outside at Paul's circumstances, see, the guys at the, at the Church of Philippi, Paul's circumstances were so bad, they, I mean, they felt for this guy. They get Epaphroditus. They, they pass the plate. They're trying to encourage this guy. They get up there, and you know what? He doesn't need encouragement. Because he's got a grip on who God is. Um... I hope you guys can be here next week because next week we're going to see. Can I read you one thing before you go? Because if I don't, I can't sleep tonight. <laughs> All right? If you got to go, go ahead. But let me read you one thing. Warren Wiersbe made this comment. And, and if you get a chance to read through Philippians this week, why don't you do it? It won't take you that long. Um, Warren Wiersbe makes a great comment because this is really the secret of how Paul develop joy in these circumstances, and how we develop joy. Listen to what he says. In spite of his danger and discomfort, Paul overflowed, overflowed with joy. What was the secret of this joy? The secret is found in another word that is often repeated in Philippians. It is the word mind, M-I-N-D. Paul uses mind ten times in Philippians. He also uses the word think five times. Add the times he uses the word remember and you have a total of 16 references to the mind. In other words, the secret of Christian joy is found in the way that a believer thinks. It's your attitude. After all, outlook determines outcome. As we are, back up, as we think, so we are. Anyone here remember Proverbs 27, uh, Proverbs 23, verse 7? As a man thinketh in his, what, heart, what? So is he. So how do you think in your heart? So what are, you, what are your circumstances? This, this guy I was talking to last week, he's got a job, and he's making good money. He's making real good money. He just doesn't like his job. He's not challenged. There are no results. And it doesn't take him a lot of time to do his job. So he was telling me all the books he'd read First and Second Samuel that day, and he was reading some other Christian books by some guys. And, and as he's telling me this, I said, you know, you, you, you know, you really got a pretty good setup. <laughs> because what you're telling me is you're making an income up here, takes you about four and a half, five hours a day to get the job done, and then you got time to do all this other stuff, and you're involved in this ministry and this ministry. And, you see, it seems to me God's just getting you ready for something. And if you're smart, you won't spend all that money. You'll save some of it. Get yourself in a position where you don't have to live on that level of income because God might take you down here and he's got some. You see, it's all how you think. If God is sovereign, then he's the warden. And he is sovereign. And I'll tell you something else. He knows where you are right now. He knows exactly where you are, and he knows how he is going to tweak these circumstances uh, to absolutely thrill you. If he hasn't done it yet, it's because the apple's still green. Wait on him. Trust him. Obey him. Don't touch sin with a 10-foot pull. Don't screw around. It's not worth it. Be different. Be in the word, love your wife. You get my drift? That's how you do it. And then let's let him work his stuff. I'm planning on coming next week. 
because I love this next section. It's one of the best sections, I think, in the New Testament. If you want to read ahead, read it. You'll see what I'm talking about. It's 8.15. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for truth. We, uh, we're kind of amazed at this guy. and I mean, in a sense, Paul was kind of a super guy. In a sense, because of what uh, you gave him to do. He had much privilege, but he also had much pain. And you gave him the pain to keep him from uh, exalting himself. Uh, Paul was uh, uniquely chosen and uniquely gifted by you. We're just a bunch of average guys in here. But, Father, you have a plan for each of us as you had a plan for Paul. You have something different for each of us to do. You have uh, distributed gifts in this room to different guys in different ways. None of us are alike. You are sovereign over our circumstances. Some of us, things are going pretty well. Others of us are frustrated. We're not seeing any results. We're not seeing anything happen. It, it's, it's not coming together. We thought you led us, and you did lead us. Help us to be patient. Help us to wait. Help us to be obedient. Help us to stay in the Scripture. Help us to read the promises. Help us not to seek great things for ourselves. Help us, Lord, to take the lower place. And at the right time, you will exalt us and you'll promote us. We wait on you. We wait for the time when the fruit is ripe. We don't want to eat green apples. We want the full aroma and fragrance and flavor that you bring into our lives when we wait on you. Enable us to trust you this week. Encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. We'll see you next week, Lord willing.